We're reading the scripture this morning from Judges chapter 7. Judges chapter 7. Let's read from verse 1. Then Jeruel, that is Gideon, and all the people who were with him rose early and encamped beside the spring of Harod. And the camp of Midian was north of them by the hill of Morah in the valley. The Lord said to Gideon, The people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand, lest Israel boast over me, saying, My own hand has saved me. Now, therefore, proclaim in the ears of the people, saying, Whoever is fearful and trembling, let him return home and hurry away from Mount Gilead. Then 22,000 of the people returned, and 10,000 remained. And the Lord said to Gideon, The people are still too many. Take them down to the water, and I will test them for you there. And anyone of whom I say to you, This one shall go with you, shall go with you. And anyone to whom I say to you, This one shall not go with you, shall not go. So he brought the people down to the water. And the Lord said to Gideon, Everyone who laps the water with his tongue as a dog laps, you shall set by himself. Likewise, everyone who kneels down to drink, and the number of those who lapped, putting their hands also to their mouth, was 300 men. But all the rest of the people knelt down to drink water. The Lord said to Gideon, With the 300 men who lapped, I will save you and give the Midianites into your hand, and let all the others go, every man to his home. So the people took provisions in their hands and their trumpets, and he sent all the rest of Israel, every man, to his tent, but retained the 300 men. And the camp of Midian was below him in the valley. That same night, the Lord said to him, Arise, go down against the camp, for I've given it into your hand. But if you're afraid to go down, Go down to the camp with Pura, your servant, and you shall hear what they say, and afterward your hands shall be strengthened to go down against the camp. Then he went down with Pura, his servant, to the outposts of the armed men who were in the camp. And the Midianites and the Amalekites and all the people of the east lay along the valley like locusts in abundance, and their camels were without number as the sand that is on the seashore in abundance. When Gideon came, behold, a man was telling a dream to his comrade. And he said, Behold, I dreamed a dream, and behold, a cake of barley bread tumbled into the camp of Midian and came to the tent and struck it so that it fell and turned it upside down so that the tent lay flat. And his comrade Answered, This is no other than the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, a man of Israel. God has given into his hand Midian and all the camp. As soon as Gideon heard the telling of the dream and its interpretation, he worshipped. 
And he returned to the camp of Israel and said, Arise, for the Lord has given the host of Midian into your hand. And he divided the 300 men into three companies, put trumpets into the hands of all of them, and empty jars with torches inside the jars. And he said to them, Look at me and do likewise. When I come to the outskirts of the camp, do as I do. When I blow the trumpet, I and all who are with me, then blow the trumpets also on every side of the camp. Shout for the Lord and for Gideon. So Gideon and the hundred men who were with him in his group came to the outskirts of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch, when they had just set the watch. And they blew the trumpets and smashed the jars that were in their hands. Then the three companies blew the trumpets and broke the jars. They held in their left hands the torches and in their right hands the trumpets to blow. And they cried out, A sword for the Lord and for Gideon. Every man stood in his place around the camp, and all the army ran. They cried out and fled. When they blew the 300 trumpets, the Lord set every man's sword against his comrade and against all the army, and the army fled as far as Beth Sheeta towards Zareth, as far as the border of Abel Meholah by Tabath. And the men of Israel were called out from Naphtali and from Asher, from all Manasseh, and they pursued after Midian. This is the word of the Lord. It's a rather exciting chapter, isn't it? This is a little bit of color to the drabness of our lives. And we've been looking at this character, Gideon. Uh, we've discovered he's a kind of, that the best thing we can say about Gideon as a man is that he is ordinary. There's absolutely nothing extraordinary about his life, uh, his background, his education, his uh, achievements, his character even. He just is bland. He's Mr. Ordinary, which in normal life, I suppose, means he would be a safe person. Uh, he's a humble man. He's quite prepared to stay out of the, the, the limelight, as it were, and let the real hero of the story be seen. That is God the Lord himself. When we met him, he was going about his own business, looking after his family. Uh, we saw that he held no military, no civic, no religious position in Israel's life. He admits to God himself that he comes from the weakest, smallest of the tribes, and that within his own family circle, he was the least of everybody. No one was more surprised than he was that an angel of the Lord came and appeared to him. And no one was more disturbed than he was when the angel greeted him with the words, O valiant warrior. The man must have shook in his feet. What on earth does that mean? I have no officer training. I've never been in the military. I've absolutely no idea how to fire an arrow or wield a sword or an AK-47, or whatever it might have been that he was thinking. And he is left exposed before God uh, and receives God's promise, I will be with you. Martin Luther has a lot of nice things to say about Gideon. Uh, he says Gideon should be noted for his humility. When God comes to him and says, I've got this big job for you, his response is to say, 
What can I do? What can I do? He despairs of himself, and he effectively says, Martin Luther puts it, I know that I cannot by my own accord do anything, and that there is nothing good in me because I'm completely a sinner and I'm a creature. God works especially by His grace in those people who, with honesty in heart and mind, consider themselves as nothing and are despised by all. This man thought himself nothing. Well, that doesn't really fit this. We're not allowed to, in our day and age, think that of ourselves. We're told that we're to tell ourselves positive things about ourselves. And I think I can dream up some that we could, that we could tell Gideon to speak about himself. But that's how he saw himself. And maybe you're here this morning, and that's how you see yourself. What do I have to contribute? And his view of himself is only reinforced when he sounds the alarm in all Israel, and only a few minor tribes of Israel come to help in this great battle with the enemy. The big names in Israel, the tribe of Judah, Ephraim, they're they're absent from the story. They don't appear at all. They don't get involved in this battle. Therefore, they don't get any of the credit for its success. So, the first thing I could say about this man Gideon this morning is that he is a, a humble man. He is a humble believer a humble believer. Uh, we looked last week at the incident of the fleece. Uh, Gideon puts out a fleece on the ground, and he asks God that in the morning when he comes back to check the fleece, that the fleece will have dew on it, but there will be no dew, dew in, on, the, uh, on the ground. Then he does a test, a retest, after God does it that way, the way he's asked, comes back to God again and says, well, tomorrow morning I'd like all the dew in the ground and none on the fleece. And that's exactly what happens. Now, the, the incident of the, of the fleece in the 20th century among evangelicals in particular has been used as, as a, a way of addressing people who are seeking the will of God. And the question that has been raised is, well, well, was Gideon right in putting this, this test on God as far as what God's will for him was? And the answer to that question is that that's not why Gideon did what Gideon did. He, was not, he wasn't testing God for what God wanted him to do. He already knew what God wanted him to do. But the, 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 the point of this fleece story is this, that the Canaanites, the people that were against them, believed that their God, Baal, was the God of rain and dew, that he was the God of nature and had nature in his power. That's why they prayed to him when there was a drought. That's why they made sacrifices to him when there was a bad harvest. They worshiped Baal as the God of nature and of rain, and of dew. So what Gideon was doing when he made that test is that he was doing exactly, precisely, what Moses did when he brought those plagues, you remember, to Egypt. Each one of those 
plagues was targeted at one of Egypt's gods, the god of the Nile, the god of the weather, and so on. All of these gods were targeted by the plagues to demonstrate that God and God alone is the creator and sustainer of the universe, that there is only one God that has everything in his power. And what God did through the, the use of the, of the uh, test that we find read, described there, the fleece in chapter 6, God was demonstrating to the men who had come and joined with Gideon that he was greater than the god Baal. So Gideon is a humble believer. Secondly, Gideon is a humble follower. At the end of chapter 6, we find that he's been able to raise up a small army, an army consisting of 32,000 men. That sounds like a lot of men, but we'll discover that they are vastly outnumbered by the federation of Canaanite tribes that are against them. In fact, we are told that 120,000 120, of the federation's men would be killed in battle, and that the rest of them fled. So we, we should be thinking that the federation had in excess of, perhaps way in excess of, 120,000 men perhaps as many as two or 300,000 more than that figure. In other words, this is a small, small force in comparison with the enemy, 32,000 men. So here he is getting ready for a war against overwhelming odds. And what happens next will reveal his faith. It will reveal his willingness to go anywhere and do anything that God tells him. Here's what we read. Then Jerubel, that is Gideon, and all the people who were with him rose early and encamped beside the spring of Harod. And the camp of Midian was north of them by the hill of Morah in the valley. So there's a valley, a large valley actually, with thousands upon thousands upon thousands of soldiers of the Canaanites, there is a hill of Morah in between them. And then there is a level area where Gideon and his men, his 32,000 men, are camped by a stream or by a, a water source called Harod. By the way, this place takes on a nickname. In the future, it's called the Trembling Spring, and we'll find out why in a moment. Well, the trembling suggests what was wrong with the militia that Gideon had gotten together. Gideon has received repeated assurances from God, either directly or indirectly, that God will be with him, that the invaders will be repelled, that the, that the fire that consumed the sacrifice that Gideon had made to God and the angel of the Lord's appearance to Gideon were all reassurances that he was on God's side. He'd even destroyed the local altar to Baal. It was his father's altar. His father had even been converted as a result of what Gideon had done and mocks the people who are calling on uh, people to fight against Gideon, saying to them, 
Well, if your Baal is really a god, let Baal fight for himself. All of these then were signs and words of God to build up his faith, that the Lord would do as he'd promised. Now they're within striking distance of their enemy's army, and now God intervenes again. Let's read on. The Lord said to Gideon, the people with you, the 30,000, 32,000, the people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand. Too many. Like there's hundreds of thousands of Midianites, your 32,000 are too many that I should give the victory into their hand. God's rationale is this. Lest Israel boast over me saying, my own hand has saved me. That really is, by the way, the key to understanding what's going on here. I don't want you to read the story of Gideon and his 32,000 and then subtracting them right down to the 300 and think, here is something that, uh, that our military leaders here in America need to learn. We need less men to fight for us. Uh, we need less weapon, weaponry to defend us. That's not what this story is about. It's not about anything to do with America in the first place, and it's nothing to do with our armed forces and the responsibility of the government to keep us all safe. This is God dealing with his own covenant people, Israel and the church. And it's teaching us a lesson here. Miles Van Pelt of uh, RTS uh, Jackson puts it like this, God often uses the unworthy and the unqualified Isaac, not Ishmael. Jacob, not Esau. Joseph, not Reuben. When he appoints a a prophet to lead his people, he picks a man who has trouble speaking in public, Moses. When he appoints a king to rule over his people, he selects the youngest brother of a family, David, not the oldest and the most experienced. Gideon himself has just confessed to us humbly that he is the least likely to be the savior of his people. And now God's calling him to trim down the military when there is a war on hand. And it happens incrementally. Listen to what the Lord goes on to say. I want you to take them all down to the stream or to the the brook. And then I want you to say to them, whoever is fearful and trembling, let them return home and away from Mount Gilead. And immediately, 22,000 people leave and go home, leaving 10,000. 22,000 pack off home. And then it gets worse. Then the Lord said to Gideon, this 10,000, these are still too many. And so he tells Gideon that he is to cut deep numbers. And we'll look into that just in a moment. Origen, one of the early church fathers, looks at this story and he says he sees echoes of what Jesus does in the Gospels. You know, it was a time when Jesus is attracting huge numbers of people. Luke tells us this. 
there were huge numbers of people from all over the region of Galilee and beyond who were coming to hear him. People could hardly move for the crowds that were coming to see and hear Jesus. And then at one point in Luke's gospel, Jesus stops. He turns to the crowds. He basically spells out what the cost of following him is. He makes it very clear that he's not there just to be a a free ride. And we're told that they all forsook him and they left. Each went back to his own place. That was the end of the crowds. That was the end of the, of the mass movement of Jesus' followers in the gospel. And sometimes in the life of the church, in the life of an individual Christian, it's as if God says, those of you who don't want any cost in following me, those of you who will not take up your cross and follow me, Jesus says, why don't you just go home? Why don't you just go home? Well, it comes down to then this next stage, the 10,000. That's too many, God says. Take them down. Get them to drink water from the well. And he divides them into two groups. God divides them into two groups. There are the lappers and there are the kneelers, those who kneel down to get the water, those who lap it like dogs, it says. People have taken that as being a derogatory thing. St. Augustine says, lapping like dogs is a positive thing. Dogs are faithful to their master. And they are. My wife gets annoyed that the dog is more faithful to me than it is to her. Which is only, he just puts that on, actually. Because when I'm away, you know perfectly well. He does what you tell him. But anyway, uh, that's enough for Augustine. So there are down, down comes to the 300 lappers and all these kneelers. Now, I've looked at commentaries this weekend, and they're trying to argue why God did this. It's because the kneelers were more attentive. You know, they, they probably would have been a better army. They, they would have fought better because they're keeping their eyes open. They're not prostrate at the, at the side of the floor. Whatever it was, people, people come up with all kinds of weird answers instead of just paying attention to what it says. It's not interested in whether they're lappers or kneelers. That's just how they're to be separated or distinguished. And, and so it is that that's what happens here. And the kneelers are sent home, leaving 300 lappers. And this is all an outworking of the principle that God has laid down right at the very beginning of this part of the story, that there should be no boasting that God is going to work through this remnant of 300 people. This is a principle you see all over Scripture. God works with the remnant. In Isaiah, you you have reference to the remnant of Israel. There was a, a, a small coterie of believing people, and God will work with that small coterie of believing people. There are churches who have loads of people who are not Christians who come to church because it's the thing you do in the Sunday, come to church. And there's a small group of believing people. God works with that small group of believers. He's never afraid. God is not afraid not to be in the majority. He's quite content so long as he has his people. 
This is a principle that goes through all of Scripture. And being weak, or a weak church even, does not mean that that church has not got the blessing of God or cannot be used by God. He will show His divine strength through human weakness. And He does that so that nobody can boast about what they've done before God. Listen to Jeremiah the prophet. Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts boast in this, that they understand and know me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness on the earth. For in these things... I delight. In other words, there's nothing wrong if you're wise, nothing wrong if you've got 20 degrees, that's even better. Uh, Where you find the wall space for all the plaques, I don't know, but there there you are. But there's nothing wrong with being wise, nothing wrong with being strong or rich. That's not the issue. The issue is this, do you understand and know God? Do you understand and know God? And only you can answer that question with all the implications of what it means to know God, knowing His steadfast love and His justice. Even the weak can be used by God. Here's how the Apostle Paul puts it. He learned this lesson for himself. He was afflicted by some illness, some issue in his life, a thorn in the flesh, he calls it. He prays with God to take it away. God doesn't take it away. Sometimes there are persistent things that get us down, that we think keep us back, that we think make us unemployable in the service of God, or or a nuisance, perhaps, in the work of God, for whatever reason. It could be an illness. It could be anything. Paul doesn't state what his was so that you and I wouldn't dismiss it if we didn't have it. He leaves it open so that you can put your thing in there. And here's what he writes. God said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. God teaches us that He will often use the least of those before the best or the strongest or the first of those. He will often use a much diminished church or a much maligned body of the faithful to shine the light in the darkness of this world's sin and ignorance. Joseph Ratzinger, Pope Benedict the Sixteenth, who recently died, talking of his own church, churchmanship and talking about the influence of Christianity generally in the world and sp- particularly in Europe, has spoken for a long time of the church of the future being a smaller, tighter, closer, more orthodox, more, faith, more faithful unit. And that not being a bad thing that not being a bad thing. 
And if he's right, and if that applies to our churches, Reformed churches as well, if that's the way it's to be, then we shouldn't despair. We shouldn't think God's left the building. We can be faithful. We can be faithful whatever the numbers. He's, this man, he is a faithful, humble follower of God. Well, thirdly, Gideon is a humble deliverer. Left with 300 against hundreds of thousands, perhaps. Two or 300,000, more likely. He makes his way near to the enemy's camp. Gets his men to circle the hills around the camp, the enemy camp. And he does this not out of some forlorn hope that the army, that the cavalry will come charging in to his rescue. No. He does this in faith that God will keep his promise and fulfill his word. And to encourage him further, God says to him, look, right now, now you're in place, but you maybe need a little bit more encouragement. I think the kindness of God coming to Gideon like this is a reminder that this is what God does with you and me. He comes to us and he sends a little act of kindness into our lives, he, a reminder of basic truths that we need to remember and believe. We know, we've known them all our lives, but sometimes we need to hear them from somebody else. And so God says, go down, sneak down the hill. Get near to one of the watchtowers of the camp below There's something I want you to overhear. I want you to eavesdrop on these Ninevite guards, Midianite guards. And and if you're too scared to do that, God says to him, take your your friend here with you. And so he and his friend, his friend's a witness to everything that takes place, of course. God has done it for that reason as well as to encourage him. They get down and they're listening in to the, the guards on the watchtower while this, they're hiding. Kind of a James Bond type thing, you know. And they're listening in and one of them has had a dream. And he's relaying the dream to his comrade, to his friend. And it's a rather strange dream. A loaf of bread rolls down the hill and flattens the tents of the camp. A loaf of bread flattening. Now, it's a symbolic dream. The Bible is full of these. You'll know that there are many Gentiles in the Bible who have such dreams. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar, the dream of a little stone from a mountain in Jerusalem, rolling down and getting bigger by the day until eventually it's so big that it crushes all the kingdoms of this world. But a roll rolling down the hill, that's another ballgame altogether. Well, he tells the dream. The dreamer's friend, colleague, answers and interprets the dream. This is none other than the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, a man of Israel. God has given into his hand Midian and all the camp. What's going on here? Well, once again, God is repeating and confirming 
what he wants Gideon to grasp. This is what God does with us. We have selective memory or an active forgettery. We forget. Sometimes we're slow in the uptake. But God is patient. God is loving. God is long-suffering with us. He comes to us over and over again from various parts of the Bible through various individual people that he uses. And he's been doing this for God's people since the beginning of time, and he will do till the end of time. Because we need the truth to be reiterated, repeated over and over and over again. And when Gideon heard the man's interpretation of this dream, it must have hit a, clearly hit a nerve in Gideon himself. This is no other than the sort of Gideon named a man of Israel. God has given Midian and all the camp into his hand. What was God's original promise to him? I will be with you. Not, not you, plural. Unfortunately, we don't have a word in English today for you personally. We have to say you personally. When we did, this is how it would have read. I will be with thee. German would be du, not sie. And thou, you personally, will strike the Midianites as one man. One man. That was what freaked him at the beginning. That he, God has said that he would be the one to destroy the Midianites. Freaked out of that. Hear this being repeated by this Midianite man that the course of Midian were going to be delivered into Gideon's hand. Merely confirmed what God had said. No wonder his response was to worship. He bowed down and he gave God glory. He recognized that God often works through the few rather than the many. That's why we should never trust in numbers, never trust in them. Rejoice in them, but never trust in them. That very often God reduces the affairs, our affairs, and and the influences in our lives, He reduces them to a desperate point so that we might depend on Him and on Him alone. Never despise the day of small things. Recall Paul's words, the The Apostle Paul, consider your calling. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. He doesn't say not any, but he says not many. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Gideon's 300 defied legions. Gideon's 300 points us, points us to and foreshadows the church in the world. Gideon worshipped And then he dished out the armaments. So, well, there were no armaments. Three companies of his 300. Every man given a trumpet. 
a clay jar, and a torch. Those were not weapons. The time comes when the trumpets are sounded. All together, the jars are smashed, and the torches shine out in the darkness. And it terrifies the people down below. They don't know what's happening. They have no idea that there's only 300 people out there. This whole sound and light show acts as to bring pandemonium to the camp below. Pandemonium. Now, what, what lesson isn't there in this for us? Well, the Apostle Paul, when he's writing to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, has been talking about the trumpet being like the proclamation of the Word of God, and he warns that the trumpet should not be sounded in an uncertain kind of way. It should be certain. It should be sure. It should be clear. And he tells us to preach the whole counsel of God. The trumpet sound. And simultaneously, the breaking of the jars before the light shines forth. Now, St. Ambrose, who was influential in the conversion of St. Augustine or Augustine, puts it like this, our predecessors have preserved the explanation received from the apostles that the jars are our bodies fashioned of clay which burn with the fervor of the grace of the Spirit and bear witness to the passion of our Lord Jesus with a loud confession of the voice. That's precisely what's going on here. Here's how the Apostle Paul uses this very incident in Corinthians. He says this, the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone into our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure. The treasure is the light of the glory of God in Jesus Christ. We have this treasure in jars of clay. Jars of clay. To show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. As I look out upon you this morning, I see clay, clay jars. All shaped somewhat differently, but that's all we are. We're made of clay in the beginning, and that's the kind of fragility that describes our human existence. We're easily broken. There was a horrific thing on Twitter this week of, of somebody ramming their car against a woman and her baby, deliberately doing so. It was caught on camera. It was absolutely unnerving to watch how fra fragile we are 
So we must never despise ourselves and we must never despise the church if either we ourselves or the church itself is weak. Relative to the power brokers of the world, it may be weak. We as individual believers should never despair of ourselves just as we must never dismiss this story. I mean, this story about weak Gideon. This is how it's described in Hebrews chapter 11. Weak people who were given strength to be brave in war and drive back foreign invaders. Writer to the Hebrews is talking about this very event. This very event. Because you see, ultimately, the true warrior of, the, and of Israel and the church is Jesus Christ himself. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. At the end of the age, it will be manifested. I saw heaven opened, writes John, and behold, a white horse, and one sitting on it, the faithful and true, and in righteousness, he judges and makes war. Christ won his greatest victory when the clay jar, the clay jar that was his human nature was broken at the cross. And he spoiled principalities and powers. And he made an open show of them by his death and by his resurrection. And God could take the broken pieces of your nature and mine and the broken pieces of our church's nature and story and can, despite that, demonstrate before the watching world the victory that we have gained. To God alone be glory for that. My paternal grandparents lived in Coventry. During World War II, Coventry was carpet bombed by the Nazis. On the first night, the Cathedral Church of St. Michael was hit and was completely destroyed apart from its spire, its tower, and the walls, everything else destroyed. By the time I came on the scene, they'd already started to build a new cathedral immediately adjacent to the old one. In fact, pulling in, the architect did a fantastic job of pulling in this massive cathedral. It started life in 1043, was built for over 100 years, 14th to 15th century, a huge old building. And between 56 and 62, that new church was, was built. But there is outside, in, on the new, in the new church, there is outside a statue, a figure, of St. Michael, the archangel. Uh, the, the figure of this angel is about 25 feet high, and his arms and wings and legs outspread are about 23 feet spread. So it's huge on the wall, made of, of metal. And underneath his feet, a figure of Satan. God uses even a devastated church. And in this case, to remind us that he hasn't finished his work. 
Nazism is long, long gone. That church still goes on. That will be the way it is until Jesus returns. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the reminder that uh, you make strength out of our weakness. We don't have to do that. You do that. You're the, you're the strong one. And we find our support in you. We pray that you would, pl- Lord, please bless our church here. Bless us as individuals, Lord, in our own Christian lives. Encourage us from your word today, we pray in Jesus' strong name. Amen.